This is The Best of Ideas, Part 1. Ken Haslam speaking. Tonight we are not able to bring you the fourth in the series of Massey lectures by Dr. Martin Luther King. Dr. King is ill, and under doctor's orders, he canceled all engagements for the past week, including his recording engagement with the CBC for his scheduled talk on nonviolence and social change. We hope to be able to bring you that talk next Monday at 10.30 on this station. The fifth and final Massey Lecture in Dr. King's series is now scheduled for Christmas Eve. That's Sunday, December the 24th at 10.30 p.m. on these same stations of the CBC network. Well, and what are we able to bring you tonight? A surprise. Most of you, no doubt, don't think of Glenn Gould as an expert on Petula Clark, but he is. Yes, I mean the Glenn Gould, the pianist. How did that happen? Well, not long ago, Mr. Gould was driving through northern Ontario, far enough north that you don't have much choice about what to listen to on the car radio. Up there, you either listen to the hit parade or your own thoughts, or both, which is what Glenn Gould did. And that's what brought on the following reflections on Pat Clark. Across the province of Ontario, Queen's Highway number 17 plies for some 1,100 miles through the Precambrian rock of the Canadian Shield, with its east-west course deflected where it climbs the northeast shore of Lake Superior. It appears in cartographic profile like one of those prehistoric airborne monsters which Hollywood promoted to star status in such late, late-show spine-tinglers of the 1950s as um, Blood Beast from Outer Space or Beak from the Beyond, and to which the fuselage design of the XB-15 paid the tribute of science, borrowing from art. Though its tail feathers tickled the urban outcroppings of Montréal and its beak pecks at the fertile prairie granary of Manitoba, number 17 defines for much of its passage across Ontario the northernmost limit of agrarian settlement, and it's endowed with habitation when at all by fishing villages, mining camps, and timber towns that straddle the highway every 50 miles or so. Among these, names such as Mishapakotan and Batchewana advertise the continuing segregation of the Canadian Indian. Rossport and Jackfish proclaim the no-nonsense map-making of the early white settlers, and Marathon and Terrace Bay Gem of the North Shore betray the post-war influx of American capital, Terrace is the Brasilia of Kimberly Clark's Kleenex Cotex Ontario operation. The layout of these latter towns, set amidst the most beguiling landscape in central North America, rigorously subscribes to that concept of northern town planning which might be defined as 1984 prefab, and to my mind provides the source of so compelling an allegory of the human condition as might well have found its way into the fantasy prose of the late Karel Chapek. Marathon is a timber town of some 2,600 souls, and it clings to the banks of a fjord which indents the coast of Lake Superior. Due to a minor miscalculation by one of the company's engineers as to the probable course of the prevailing winds, the place has been overhung since its inception two decades ago with a pulp and paper stench that serves to proclaim the monolithic nature of the town's economy, even as it discourages any supplemental income from the tourist trade. 
Real estate values, consequently, are relative to one's distance from the plant. At the boardwalk level, the company has located a barracks for unmarried and or itinerant workers. Upper block, hotel, cinema, chapel, and general store. At the next plateau, an assortment of prefabs. Beyond them, at a further elevation, some split levels for the junior execs. And finally, with one more gentle ascent and a hard right turn, a block of paternalistic brick mansions that would be right to home among the more exclusive suburbs of Westchester County, N.Y. Surely the upward mobility of North American society can scarcely ever have been more persuasively demonstrated. It gives a man something to shoot at, I was assured, by one local luminary whose political persuasion as it developed was somewhere to the right of Prince Metternich. A few hundred yards beyond Presidential Row, a bulldozed trail leads to the smog-free top of the fjord, but from this approach, one is held at bay by a padlocked gate bearing a sign from which, in the manner of those reassuring marquees that used to decorate the boarding ramps of Pan American Airways, one learns that your company has now had 165 accident-free workdays and that access to the top is prohibited. Up there, on that crest, beyond the stench, one can see the two indispensable features of any thriving timber town, its log chute breaking bush back through that trackless terrain, if I may coin a phrase, and an antenna for the low-power relay system of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. These relay outlets, with their radius of three or four miles, serve only the immediate area of each community. As one drives along number 17, encountering them every hour or so, they constitute the surest evidence that the outside, as we northerners like to call it, is with us still. In the outpost communities, the CBC's culture pitch, Boulez, is very big in Batchewana, is supplemented by local programming, which in the traditions of commercial radio everywhere, leans toward a formula of news on the hour and 55 minutes of the pop picks from Billboard magazine. This happy ambivalence made my last trip along 17 noteworthy, for at that time, climbing fast on all the charts and featured hard upon the hour by most DJs was an item called Who Am I? The singer was Petula Clark, the composer and conductor, Tony Hatch. Buildings reach up to the sky, the traffic thunders on the busy street, even slips beneath my feet, I walk alone and wonder, who am I? I contrived to match my driving speed to the distance between relay outlets, came to hear it most hours, and in the end to know it, if not better than the soloist, at least as well, perhaps, as most of the sidemen who were booked for the date. After several hundred miles of this exposure, I checked into the hotel at Marathon and made plans to contemplate Petula. I was the fourth in a remarkable series of songs which established the American career of Petula Clark. Released in 1966 and preceded the year before by Sign of the Times and My Love, it laid to rest any uncharitable notion that her success with the ubiquitous downtown of 1964 was a fluke. Moreover, this quartet of hits was designed to convey the idea that, bound as she might be by limitations of timbre and range, she would not accept any corresponding restrictions of theme and sentiment. Each of the four songs details an adjacent plateau of experience, the 23 months separating the release dates of Downtown and Who Am I being but a modest acceleration of the American teenager's precipitous scramble from the parental nest. And Pet Clark is in many ways the complete synthesis of this experience. 
At 34, with two children, with three distinct careers, in the 40s she was the British cinema's anticipation of Annette Funicello, and a decade later a subdued chanteuse in Paris nighteries, and with a voice, figure, and at a respectable distance face that betray few of the ravages of this experiential sequence, she is pop music's most persuasive embodiment of the Gidget syndrome. Her audience is large, constant, and possessed of an enthusiasm which transcends the generations. One recent visitor from the Netherlands, a gentleman in his 60s who had previously assured me that American pop trends were the corrupting inspiration behind last summer's Provo riots in that country, became impaled upon his grandchildren's enthusiasm for my love. He said it called to mind the spirit of congregational singing in the Dutch Reformed Church and asked to hear it once again. Petrula minimizes the emotional metamorphosis implicit in these songs, extracting from the text of each the same message of detachment and sexual circumspection. Downtown, that intoxicated adolescent daydream, things will be great when you're downtown. Don't wait a minute for downtown. Everything's waiting for you. Is, as she tells it, but a step from my love, that vigorous essay in self-advertisement. My love is warmer than the warmest sunshine. Softer than a sigh, my love is deeper than the deepest ocean. <sighs> Wider than the sky. And from the reconciliatory concession of sign of the times, I'll never understand the way you treated me, but when I hold your hand, I know you couldn't be the way you used to be. The sequence of events implicit in these songs is sufficiently ambiguous as to allow the audience dipping in privileges. It's entirely possible to start with Who Am I, as I did, and sample downtown later at one's leisure. But a well-ordered career in pop music should be conceived like the dramatis personae of soap opera. Dipping into the secret storm once every semester should tell you all you really need to know about how things are working out for Amy Ames. And similarly, the title, tempo, and tonal range of a performer's hit should observe a certain bibliographic progression. And you thought Frankie had other reasons for it's been a very good year? I'm inclined to suspect that had the sequence of her songs been reversed, Petula's American reputation might not have gained momentum quite so easily. There is an inevitability about that quartet, with its relentless on-pressing to the experiences of adulthood or reasonable facsimile thereof, and to a teenage audience whose social-sexual awareness dovetailed with their release dates, Petula, in her well-turned-out gidgetry, would provide gratifying reassurance of post-adolescent survival. To her more mature public, she's a comfort of another kind, Everything about her on stage, on mic manner belies the aggressive proclamations of the lyrics. Face, figure, discreet durations, but above all that voice, fiercely loyal to its one great octave, indulging none but the most circumspect slides and filigree, vibrato so tight and fast as to be non-existent, none of that here comes the fermata so hold on tremolando, with which her nibs Georgie Gibbs grated like squeaky chalk upon the exposed nerves of my generation. Pachula panders to the wishful thinking of the older set that Style be hanged, modesty prevails. Leave the child be, Ma, just a touch of prick to heat. The gap between the demonstrative attitude of the lyrics and the restraint with which Petula ministers to their delivery is symptomatic of a more fundamental dichotomy. Each of the songs contrived for her by Tony Hatch emphasizes some aspect of that discrepancy between an adolescent's short-term need to rebel and long-range readiness to conform. In each, the score pointedly contradicts that broad streak of self-indulgence that permeates the lyrics. The harmonic attitude is at all times hymnal, upright, and relentlessly diatonic. Sign of the times, when you call me 
Well, come to that. Almost all pop music today is relentlessly diatonic. The Max Rager, Vincent Dandy chromatic bent, which infiltrated big band arranging in the late 30s and the 40s, ran its course when Ralph Flanagan got augmented sixth out of his system. But Tony Hatch's diatonicism, relative to Messrs. Lennon-McCartney et al., is possessed of more than just a difference in kind. For the Beatles, a neo-triadic persuasion is, or was, a guerrilla tactic, an instrument of revolution. Annexing such vox populi conventions of English folk harmony as the Greensleeves type nonchalance of old von Williams' lethargic parallel fifths, the new minstrels turned this lovably bumbling plain speech into a disparaging mimicry of upper-class inflection. They went about sabotaging the seats of tonal power and piety with the same opportunism that in Room at the Top motivated Lawrence Harvey in his seduction of Sir Donald Wolford's daughter. Tonally, the Beatles have as little regard for the niceties of voice leading as Eric Satie for the anguished cross-relations of the German post-romantics. Theirs is a happy, cocky, belligerently resourceless brand of harmonic primitivism. Their career has been one long send-up of the equation. Sophistication equals chromatic extension. The willful, dominant prolongations and false tonic releases to which they subject us, Michel notwithstanding, in the name of foreground elaboration, are merely symptomatic of a cavalier disinclination to observe the psychological properties of tonal background. In the Liverpudlian repertoire, the indulgent amateurishness of the musical material, though closely rivaled by the indifference of the performing style, is actually surpassed only by the ineptitude of the studio production method. Strawberry Fields suggests a chance encounter at a mountain wedding between Claudio Monteverdi and a jug band. And yet, for a portion of the musical elite, the Beatles are, for this year at least, incomparably in. After all, if you make use of sitars, white noise, and Kathy Berberian, you must have something, right? Wrong. The real attraction, concealed by virtue of that same adroit self-deception with which coffeehouse intellectuals talked themselves into Charlie Parker in the 40s and Lenny Tristano in the 50s, is the need for the common triad as purgative. After all, the central nervous system can accommodate only so many pages of persistent pianissimos, chord clusters in the marge, and tritones on the vibes. Sooner or later, the diet palls and the patient cries out for a cool draught of C major. In filling this need, however, the Beatles are entirely incidental. They get the nod at the moment simply through that amateurishness which makes the whole phenomenon of their C major seem credible as an accident of overtone displacement, and through that avant-garde article of faith that nothing is more despicable than a professional triad tester. The Beatles' in versus Petula's relative out can be diagnosed on the same terms and as part of that same syndrome of status quest that renders Tristano's G minor complex arcane, Poulenc's organ concerto in the same key banal, the poetry of the aglulic Eskimos absorbing, Sibelius, Tapiola, Tedious, and that drives those who feel diffident to buy Bentleys. But for Tony Hatch, tonality is not a worked-out load. It is a viable and continuing source of productive energy with priorities that demand and get from him attention. Downtown is the most affirmatively diatonic exhortation in the key of E major, since the unlikely team of Felix Mendelssohn and Harriet Beecher Stowe pooled talents for still still with thee when purple morning breaketh, when the bird waketh and the shadows flee. Sign of the Times, on the other hand, admits one fairly sophisticated altercation between the tonic with its dominant and the minor mediant relations similarly embroidered, which twice underlines the idea that...
harmonic overlay suggests that there's still sufficient autostratus cloud cover to hamper visibility. My love, though, remains firmly persuaded of its non-modulating course. Throughout its two minutes and 45 seconds, the only extra diatonic event which disturbs proceedings is the near-inevitable hookup to the flattened supertonic for a final chorus, two neighborly dominants being the pivots involved. Indeed, only one secondary dominant which happens to coincide with the line, it shows how wrong we all can be, compromises the virginal propriety of its responsibly confirming Fuxian basses. And none of those stray, flattened, leading tones as root implies a moment's lack of resolution. It's all of a piece, a proud, secure, Methodist tract, preordained, devoid of doubt, admitting of no compromise. And as legions of patrullers gyrate ensnared within its righteous euphony, galleries of oval-framed ancestors peer down upon that deft deflation of the lyrics and approve. After the prevailing euphoria of the three songs which preceded it, Who Am I reads like a document of despair. It catalogues those symptoms of disenchantment and ennui which inevitably scuttle a trajectory of emotional escalation such as bound that trilogy together. The singer's downtown-based confidence in the therapeutic effect of noise, hurry, and bright lights has been shattered. Those alluring asphalt canyons which promised an escape from that life which is making you lonely have exacted a high price for their gift of anonymity. For though she's now found a place where buildings reach up to the sky, where traffic thunders on the busy street, where pavement slips beneath my feet, she continues to walk alone and wonder, who am I? Clearly, it's a question of identity crisis, vertiginous and claustrophobic, induced through the traumatic experience of a metropolitan environment and quite possibly aggravated by sore feet. There is, of course, the inevitable apotheosis, complete with falsetto C, on behalf of the restorative therapy of Amour. But I have something else entirely free, the love of someone close to me, to question such good fortune, who am I? Yet the prevailing dysphoria of that existentially questing title is not to be routed by so conventional and half-hearted an appendage. Motivically, who am I plays a similar game of reverse downtownism. The principal motivic cell unit of that ebullient lead consisted of the interval of a minor third plus a major second alternating upon occasion with a major third followed by a minor second. In downtown, the composite of either of these figures, the perfect fourth, became the title motive. And the figures themselves were elongated by reiterated notes when you're alone and life is... Downtown. ...shuffled by commas, downtown where, to help I, pretty how can... And constantly elaborated by the sort of free diatonic transpositioning which seems entirely consistent with the improvisatory fantasies of youth. Mm -hmm. 
In Who Am I, however, the same motive, though introduced and occasionally relieved by scale-step passages, the buildings reach up to the sky, is most often locked into a diatonic spiral, the notes F-E-C, C-A-G, serving to underline. I walk alone and wonder, who am I? Furthermore, the bass line at this moment is engaged with the notes D-G-E and G-E-A a vertical synchronization of which would imply a harmonic composite of the title motive. Now, admittedly, such Schoenbergian jargon must be charily applied to the carefree creations of the pop scene. At all costs, one must avoid those more formidable precepts of Princetonian babbitry, such as pitch class, which, since they have not yet forged the Hudson unchallenged, can scarcely be expected to have plied the Atlantic and to have taken Walthamstow studio without a fight. Nevertheless, Downtown and Who Am I clearly represent two sides of the same much-minted coin. The infectious enthusiasm of the Downtown motive encounters its obverse in the somnambulistic systematization of the Who Am I symbol, a unit perfectly adapted to the tenor of mindless confidence and the tone of slurred articulation with which Petula evokes the interminable mid-morning coffee-hour laments of all the secret sippers of suburbia. Strictly speaking, the idea of suburbia is meaningless within the context of Marathon. From waterfront to Presidential Row is but five blocks, and beyond that elevation one can pick out only two symbols of urban periphery, the Peninsula Golf and Country Club, no trespassing, keep off the grass, beware the dog, and as summer alternative, a small pond cared for by a local service club in lieu of the fjord, which was long ago rendered unfit for swimming. Both are well within range of the transmitter, though its power rapidly declines as one passes beyond the country club towards the highway, and consequently, whether via transistor or foyer PA, one remains exposed to the same single-channel news and music menu. The problem for citizens of Marathon is that, however tacitly, a preoccupation with escalation and a concern with subsequent decline effectively cancel each other out. And the result, despite the conscientious stratification of the town, is a curiously compromised emotional unilaterality. There are, of course, other ways to plan a town. Terrace Bay was designed two years after Marathon and apparently profited by the miscalculations which plagued its eastern neighbor. Wind direction, predominantly northwesterly, was carefully plotted and the plant accordingly located to the north and east of the settlement. The town was designed around a shopping plaza and set on level ground 200 feet above Lake Superior. The executives were encouraged to locate like den mothers, one to each prefab block. Coddling the men don't work, Prince Metternich assured me, just robs them of incentive. I resolved to have a look and set off at dusk for the gem of the North Shore. Number 17 patrolled at night affords a remarkable auditory experience. The height of land in northern Ontario, a modest 2,000 feet, is attained immediately north of Lake Superior. From beyond that point, all water flows toward Hudson's Bay and ultimately the Arctic Sea. Traversing that promontory after sundown, one discovers an astounding clarity of AM reception. 
All the accents of the continent are spread across the band, and as one twiddles the dial to reap the diversity of that encounter, the day's auditory impressions with their hypnotic insularity recede, then re-emerge as part of a balanced and resilient perspective. This is London calling in the North American service of the BBC. It is the news read by... It's 46 chilly degrees in the Grand Say there, Dad, if it's time for that second car you've been promising to the woman, how's about checking the bargains down at... Et maintenant, le symphony numéro 42, de Mozart, joué par... Okay, chickadees, here's the one you've been asking for, and tonight it's specially dedicated to Paul from Doris, to Marianne from a secret admirer, and to all the men in special detention detail out at the Institute, from Big Bertha and the gals of the MS Vagabond, riding at anchor just a cozy quarter mile beyond the international limit, Pet Clark with that question we've all been asking. I walk alone and wonder, who am I? Thus far, Mr. Glenn Gould on Petula Clark. The buildings reach up to the sky The traffic thunders on the busy street Even slips beneath my feet I walk alone and wonder who am I Glenn Gould has been probing the deeper reasons for the Petula Clark phenomenon. That program was produced with the technical assistance of Lorne Talk by Glenn Gould for ideas coordinating producer Janet Somerville. We're grateful to High Fidelity magazine for permission to broadcast the text. Next Monday at this time, we hope to resume the 1967 Massey Lectures by Dr. Martin Luther King, who has been prevented this week by illness from recording his fourth Massey Lecture on nonviolence and social change, which was scheduled for tonight. That will make the fifth and final 1967 Massey Lecture fall on Christmas Eve, 
Sunday, December the 24th, at 10.30 p.m. on these same CBC stations of the CBC Network. This is your host, Ken Haslam, for the best of ideas, inviting you to stay tuned for part two, which follows the news over most of these stations. This is the CBC Radio Network.